Hebrews chapter 12. We were in Hebrews 12 a couple weeks back and dealt with God's love and discipline within our life. And then uh, I was given this particular passage, certain verses to preach on at the Victory Conference, and I did. And, and then still going through it, my mind's been on it, and there's some other uh, things I'd like to draw our attention to here in Hebrews chapter 12. So let's look at it here and let's stand together and we'll read the uh, first few verses and uh, then we'll jump back into this. Verse number one. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth it. Every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Tonight, I want us to look at this. I'm just going to elaborate on what we had talked about and just a few other highlights of this. It's a packed, powerful chapter. So there are many, many, many different things we could spend a long time and just dealing with the different, the diagramming of this chapter as well as the great truths that are listed here. But I want to stick with what we've been discussing thus far. So let's jump in. Thank you. Please be seated. I heard about a man the other day who said he had so many troubles that if something else were to happen to him, it'd be two weeks before he would even have time to worry about it. <laughs> Maybe you feel that way from time to time. Maybe you feel that way tonight. Maybe you just feel like things are going wrong for you and every time you seem to get things just the way you want them, something else happens and it goes awry. Now, what you may need to understand is that some of the things that may be happening to you may be things that God is doing to you. I mean, God has a plan for you. And that it might be God who's doing the throwing of the monkey wrench into your works. It might be God who is the one who's disturbing your life. It might be God who is the one sending all of the upheaval. It may be God who is jerking the rug out from beneath your feet. Joe Church, missionary to Africa, said, Real revival is not when the top blows off, but rather is when the bottom falls out. Sometimes God will let you hit rock bottom just so that you'll discover that He's the rock at the bottom. You see, the fact is, God is love and Jesus is wonderful. But we're not going to recognize that until we are in a climate in an atmosphere where we can see that he tells us that, but just because he tells it to us doesn't mean that we quite grasp it. Our greatest need is to discover that Jesus is all that we need. So tonight we're going to once again take a look at this same passage and I want to preach to you tonight the thought on what to do when the bottom falls out. 
what to do when the bottom falls out, or how to handle God's loving discipline. Now, we talked before about this fact that God does love us, and He tells us that right here in this passage. He mentions His love for those who belong to Him. And He's coming off of chapter number 11, this great chapter of faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. God wants you to please Him. And you and I can please Him. And I'm thankful He doesn't say what you do is is the key to pleasing God. No, it's our dependence upon Him is what pleases Him. But then he moves into chapter 12, wherefore, as a result of all that he's told us in chapter 11, he's trying to encourage some people and who, has, who have been experiencing the bottom falling out in their life. And he says, remember those in chapter number 11. Don't forget about that great cloud of witnesses that suffered. They were tortured. Many of them didn't even see the result, the fruit of their labor. Not on this earthly pilgrim, pilgrimage. Many did not according to chapter 11. But we can take courage that they succeeded in pleasing God because of their great faith. Or I should say their faith in a great God. So he says, verse 1. And remember this group in chapter 11, verse 2. When you're going through life and the bottom falls out, look unto Jesus. Don't forget about Jesus because verse number 3 says, Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. And before anybody gives up on God, they've given up in their minds. Consider those in chapter 11. Consider Jesus. But then he moves into another thought, and that is, consider what God is doing in your life. Consider that you might be going through a problem and difficulty and seeming trial in your life because of you. And God is stepping in because he's a loving father, and he's going to do what a loving father ought to do, and that is correct. And so we find here he's moving into verse number four and he says, you've suffered, but you've not died as a result of your suffering. And then verse five, have you forgotten what we're told back in Proverbs chapter three? And he gives the quote in verse five, my son despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And so he's reminding them that you might be going through some things because God says you belong to him. And belonging to him, he's responsible for you. And he's going to deal with you. And so what are we to do when the bottom falls out? Well, one of the things tonight, and put it this way, and I've really looked and I sat down and wrote three different messages giving a different emphasis of this same thought. So here's the thought. We're going to stay with this train of thought tonight. Number one, recognize God's dealings. Recognize in your life what it is that might be of God. Recognize the fact that God might be the one involved in your life. A lot of times Christians chalk up to the devil that he's doing something, but what the writer of Hebrews, and again, I think it's Paul, but what he's saying is, don't give credit to the devil unless that's your father. 
because your heavenly father is telling us right here, he loves you and he's got a great concern for your life and he's going to deal with you. God is trying to get our attention. Remember, we're not the one trying to get God's attention. Don't ever think that. God is the one trying to get our attention. And so he tells us how he does it. He does it through, number one, rebuke. That's what he mentions in verse 5. Nor faint when thou art rebuked. And then he says in verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And then he mentions in verse 6, And scourgeth. We mentioned these before, but you have these three aspects of God's loving discipline, God's loving dealings in our life. One is that of rebuke. And if we're not responding to the rebuke, God says, I will chasten. That's where God picks up the strength and he gets hands-on involved. You say, well, if it's hands-on involved with the chastening, then what is the rebuke? Well, the word rebuke is the same word that is found in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. And in 2 Timothy 3.16, it's translated reproof. But it's the same word. Rebuke in Hebrews 12 is reproof in 2 Timothy 3.16. And then you find it again in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he says, preach the word, reprove, rebuke. See, what he's saying is, every time you open the Bible, the Bible's powerful enough to do some rebuking. It's powerful enough for God to speak to you through the convincement of that which the Holy Spirit of God inspired and is forever settled in heaven. And it is perfect enough that the Holy Spirit, who is the convincer, can take it to our life to tell you, hey, here's what God thinks about it. Here's what God has to say to you. Here's what God has to say to me. Every time we open the word of God, it ought to be room and there ought to be an understanding and recognizing of God's dealings in my life when he comes to rebuking me, convicting me. I, don't, I just want to go to, to church and, and, and uh, not, not be made to feel guilty at church. Well, go to heaven. You'll never have to worry about feeling guilty there. Until then, the word of God's design is to make you aware of the sin that causes the guilt. God doesn't want you to be miserable except when you want to hold on to sin. Then he says, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. When sin is finished, it always results in separation, death from God. He's talking to Christians there, by the way. And so rebuke. And if you don't respond to the word of God that rebukes, and he mentions also the preaching of the word. When the word of God preached, there's room for God to do the work of rebuking. So let me ask you this. How are you responding to the Bible? And some will say, I am just perfectly in line with the Bible. Well, it's easy to say that when you don't read it. It's easy to say it when you ignore it. 
But he doesn't give you the option, just read it or be preached to. The idea is verses packed together, 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 4, they go together. It's the word of God, whether it's read or it's preached, it ought to be doing the same thing. And you can't pass the litmus test of, well, I read it and God doesn't show me that I'm wrong in anything, but I refuse to listen to the preaching because I don't like the way it's coming across. Listen, it's not the bad attitude of Jonah that, that would keep people from responding. Someone can say, I just don't like the way it comes across. I don't like how Paul does it. I don't like the way John the Baptist gets it across there. I don't like the way Stephen does it. Stephen must have been wrong. Look at the people who were mad at Stephen. Look at all the people that picked up the rocks and threw them at Stephen must have, he, he should have taken a class on how to win friends and influence people because you certainly can. You can win more people with honey than vinegar. And Stephen, he needed to learn a lesson or two because people didn't stick with Stephen. I want to tell you the greatest time in Stephen's life is when Jesus stood for Stephen when everyone else stoned him. And the Bible tells us this, that we need to remember he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Just because someone doesn't receive it doesn't mean that he was not anointed with God. What it means is not everybody wants to listen to the rebuke of the word of God. And so I'm reminding us, if you're going to respond right whenever God is doing something in your life, you better recognize what is God doing? Whenever I, I sit down with somebody and I say, listen, I, I wouldn't be a good friend and I definitely wouldn't be a good pastor if I didn't say to you, here's a concern. Here are some things. I know we have blind spots. We all do. But I want to help you because, again, I'm a good friend, but I have to answer to God and be a pastor. It's not good to let you be deceived. And immediately when it comes, the response is, oh, no, that's not me. I, it's not, I'm not, no, no, you're not talking about me. It's not me. No, you're not, you, you know, pastor, you're all wrong. You're just out of, you're out of place. You're out of line. You don't, don't, don't approach me like that. We're, I'm telling you, whether you miss me or not, it's not really the issue. But when you fail to recognize God's dealings in your life, God's not in heaven wringing his hands saying, oh, no, what am I going to do? But you're going to lose ground. You're going to lose the place of miracles. But God loves you. We need to recognize God's dealings. You know, we move from rebuke to chasing, discouraging. And the fact is, he says all of this in the realm of love. God loves you. Even when you don't feel loved, do you know that you are loved? Amen. That's what he tells us. Scourging. Scourging is that realm. And I don't know if we got into this the last time or not, but... No, he did up at Falls. And, uh, but the scourging is the area where you do find that he took some on out of this earth. He took them home. And we find it in 1 Corinthians 5 when there was immorality. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1 said, There's fornication among you so much that is not, that is not so much as named among the saints. Uh, or among the Gentiles, rather. And he says they're tolerating fornication that even the Gentiles, the unsaved, recognize. You shouldn't put up with this stuff. And God got in and scourging was to take place and they put the man out of the church. 
But then you find in 1 Corinthians 10 examples of Old Testament illustrations. In 1 Corinthians 11, you find that because they handled the Lord's table unworthily, there were some who prematurely died. And by the way, anytime someone says, I just don't like the way your approach to the Lord's table, I want to tell you, I'm not tampering with something that can bring about death. I'm going to always draw the safest and the strictest line to Scripture as I possibly can. Especially when people died as a result of not taking it serious enough. Just because you're concerned that your pawpaw ain't going to be able to take communion because he's not a member when he shows up. I ain't budging a line for you or your pawpaw or anybody else. It's a big deal. I said it's a big deal. You just read 1 Corinthians 11. And I do want to throw this out. I threw this out up at the Victory Conference. But it doesn't say that those who took unworthily were the ones who died. It just said there were those who took unworthily and many slept. Some slept. Some died prematurely. It doesn't say there's not a correlation there. But I, I do sometimes wonder. Because the Bible describes a church as a body. He's the head. And if there's not the attitude that says, we just check it off our list, we've got to do it, we're not going to take serious, we're not going to get right with people when we're supposed to get right, but we're going to take communion because that's my right. And we go through the motion. I, I, I just wonder if God doesn't reach down and touch the body not necessarily the guilty one, but it affects somebody else. And there are some that have died prematurely in the body because of the sin of somebody else. You say, has that ever happened in the Bible? Have you ever heard the name Achan? Yeah, his children were stoned. And that wasn't a Colorado activity that took place. That was literal putting to death because of the guilt the sin, the erring of one father. Yeah, it's a big deal. I'm saying it's a big deal. No matter what you may say, I just think everybody, it doesn't really matter what you think about it. What matters is what does God say about it? And I go and I'm going to take the safest to Scripture and the strictest to Scripture. If we're going to err, we're going to err on the side of Scripture rather than the relevance and the trend of society. By the way, where does opening up communion to anybody and everybody come from? It comes from the Catholic Church. You just go through history, that's where it came from. By the way, I'm not a Protestant. I didn't come out of the Catholic Church. Our Baptist forefathers were protesting long before Martin Luther ever nailed anything to the, to the door. Yeah, we're Baptists. We can trace back our teaching all the way back to Jesus Christ. And so I'm thankful for those who came out. I'm thankful for that. But I just want to say I'm thankful that there were never those who were in the Catholic Church that, that never went to the left with the teaching. They stood with the thoughts and the truths and the principles and the Word of God that Jesus Christ delivered to His disciples and carried on through the New Testament. So it's a big deal. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, we're told that God killed them. Why? Because they pretended to be right when they were not right. Now, somebody said to me, and this has happened many times, well, I just don't see that happening today. 
And here's my answer to that. I also don't see the kind of fervency and passion in our churches that you find in the book of Acts in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. The reviving of uh, Pentecost that took place took place after a 10 solid day prayer meeting. Acts chapter 4, the same ones who were filled in Acts 1 and 2 were the ones praying for God's filling again in chapter 4. And by the way, those who are filled in chapter 4, the same ones from chapter 1 and 2, those who are filled in chapter 4 did not speak in tongues in chapter 4. Why? Because it's not an essential. What is essential to the leadership and the power and the anointing and the filling of the Holy Spirit is that we be right with God, we serve and seek the good of others, and we speak the truth of the gospel. That was the essential. And by the way, that's what they were praying for boldness about in chapter 4. And so I say in chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira got on the scene, they tried to get themselves into jockeying into a position where people could see what they had done. God was simply answering the prayer of the church, the heartbeat of the church from chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4. And when chapter 5, the Imposters, the hypocrites, the deceivers come along, and God says, No, no, there have been many who have been praying for me to show up, and I'm here. God is light, in him is no darkness at all, and scourging took place. I'm saying, Recognize God's dealings. Recognize God's dealings. And that's why we try to protect and help too, by the way, when it comes to people in positions. I don't want there to be the potential for an Ananias and Sapphire. If you're not willing to get all in and if you're not willing to be influenced by the influencer that God has placed here, you have no business being in the way of people being influenced by God. God takes serious Ananias and Sapphira still today, but I'm afraid many of our churches were more filled with Ananias and Sapphira's than we are the Peters and those that were praying for God to show up. And so God is sometimes letting the, the floor, the bottom fall out. One of the greatest cults in America is the cult of being comfortable, the comfortable. We just like to settle down and stay in our comfort zone. Someone has well said that every preacher ought to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. George Truett was a Baptist preacher. He said it this way. If you've imagined that the ideal life is ease and rest and quiet, your imagination has been a vain one. The ideal life is marked by struggle, change, conflict, and upheaval. Why? Because God's trying to get us to see his dealings within our life. Now, why is this disturbance necessary? Why doesn't God just leave us alone? Why can't God just let us live a happy life and a peaceful uh, and have a peaceful old age and a serene death? Why does God just keep stirring things up? Well, because he loves you. Why does the Lord deal with us? Because he loves you. And so we must recognize the dealings of God within our life. Now, there's certain reasons here that we see, and we give you three of these in recognizing God's dealings and uh, why the Lord deals with us. Because first of all, in verse number one, wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which doth so easily beset us. 
So why is the Lord dealing with us? Because there are things in our life that must be rejected. There's things, if you're going to, to live to please God and experience what God has for you, you've got to see there's things that need to be rejected. What is it that needs to be rejected? Well, he talks about weight and sin. The word weight is the idea of a burdensome load. If you were to, to see a runner uh, step up to the uh, starting block and is going to run the 100 meter, you wouldn't expect to see them wearing um, uh, uh, several layers of coats and, and uh, ankle weights. And maybe in practicing they would, but not in the actual event. And so he uses the word weight. It may be something that's not a sin. It may just be something that's a distraction. What is it that might be a distraction? And he's saying here, anything that would handicap you from being able to be effective in your relationship with the Lord, you need to throw it off. Throw it off. And then he says sin. Now there are many commentators that feel like sin is the same as the weight. And it could be. And the idea there is the weight, if you don't throw it off, it'll become sin. You know, in other words, recreation is not bad. Recreation is to recreate our bodies. But when that which has been designed to be a diversion and to be a help in recreating your mind, recreating your body, it becomes either your God or it becomes that which sucks the life out of you. That which is a weight can easily turn into a sin because now it has a strangle on your life spiritually. So we need to recognize the Lord deals with us because there's things that, that I must reject. But there's also, he says in the second part of the verse, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So there are things that I must reject, so God's going to deal with me, but there's also a race that must be run. I've got to run a race. You have to run a race. And God tells us how to run it. We're to run the race with patience. That, that is endurance. And that word appears several times in this letter. In fact, notice in verse number 2. He tells us Jesus endured the cross. That's before his death or, or at his death. But before his death, it says he endured contradiction of sinners. He endured, in other words, the hostility of the sinners against himself. So what he's telling us is, if you're going to be a mature disciple, you've got to recognize there's a race to be run and you're going to have to endure some things. Endurance. Mature believers know that the life to which we're committed has incredible compensation coming with it. It's a retirement plan uh, that, that you find parallel to none other. It may not be until you get to heaven that you get it, but it'll be worth it all when you see Jesus. But if you're going to experience the totality of it, you've got to run this race with patience endurance. But then he's going to deal with me and I've got to recognize his dealings because in verses 2 and 3, notice verse 2, looking unto, say the word, Jesus. Jesus. We must get our eyes on Jesus only. I must get my eyes on Jesus only. And so he talks about Jesus here and it's the idea of looking, these 
fixed eyes. When it says looking, it's the idea of I'm looking away from everything else. Sometimes people say, did you hear about this and did you see this? And sometimes I'm just completely ignorant of what may be going on in some of the, the battling that is taking place in, in ministry and in other people's lives. And that's not always a bad thing. It's good whenever you are looking away from things that could distract and looking only unto Jesus. And so here's, if I were to, to give you the simplicity of this chapter now after really uh, marinating in it for a couple weeks. The writer says, look unto Jesus. That's how we ought to live. Look away from everything else, look unto Jesus. A lot of things that I do, it's not because I have to do it. I do it because I'm looking unto Jesus. I'm not pressured by a crowd to compromise my belief. I'm not pressured by society that says the majority of people, they now take this position. And preachers have capitulated to this majority crowd on this issue and this issue and this issue. And don't you know you're one of the only people, Pastor Ingram, in Newton County who believes this or this or this. Well, I'm just looking unto Jesus. I'm not really all that interested, and I've said it many, many times. I can't help nor answer why people do what they do and why preachers have shifted the way they've shifted. I'm just looking unto Jesus. And what I find is he changes not. He doesn't change. And so looking unto Jesus, and what happens? We get our eyes off the Lord. What happens when we get our eyes off the Lord? Well, He loves us so much, He's going to help us to get our eyes back on Him. And sometimes it might be a spanking session. We, we have these spanking sessions. We, we call them Elmer's, an Elmer session, a craft ses- a session in which we, we uh, uh, apply these, uh, uh, these craft um, projects to our children's lives and but no child wants to live in spanking mode I mean no, no one wants to how long was the spanking um, three weeks but for many of God's people they've lived decades in spanking mode They've been living a long time. Do you know what the rest of chapter 12 is about? If you don't see the need for looking unto Jesus, the remainder of the chapter is about him trying to get you to look back unto Jesus. And if you finally don't, here's how it's going to turn out for you. Why live in spanking mode when you can live in joy, satisfaction realm with Jesus Christ by looking unto him? See, when you refuse to respond to the power of the word of God and you service in, service out, day in, day out, week in, week out, and service is never a substitute for you to respond to the authority of the word of God and the authority of the word of God and the authority of the word of God, you're living in spanking mode. And God never intended for you to live there. But he loves you too much to let you go and he loves you too much to let go of you. 
And so you never accuse God of being impatient or rash because there are some in Canaan Baptist Church, they've been in spanking mode for a long time. You say, well, is that kind of judgmental? Well, yeah, that's God's judging. Yeah, when God judges, that's judging. That's what God's doing. He's already told us that. If you don't respond to the convicting of the Word of God, the convincement of the Spirit of God, you don't cooperate with God's loving discipline. God says, I'm going to rebuke, I will chasten, and when we have to, there will be scourging. Why? Because God loves you. And He stays dealing with you as His own. He takes responsibility. There are no latchkey kids in God's family because of a neglectful or an overly busy God. Oh, yes, there are some prodigals. But God loves them just the same. Well, why hasn't God struck me dead? The same reason the prodigal's father didn't shoot him. But he also didn't go after him either. But he didn't sell the farm. He stayed put. Maybe some of you parents and grandparents have been burdened about a wayward son or daughter or grandchild. Let me encourage you to run this race with patience. Don't sell the farm. Don't you budge. Because when the prodigal came home, could you imagine if daddy sold the farm? He wouldn't know where to come back to. But he came back to a father whose arms were wide open and was just at the same place where he left him. And so, would you recognize God's dealings in your life? Here's another thing real quick. When the bottom falls out, number two, embrace God's essentials. Embrace God's essentials. There's some things about God we need to embrace. In the classic book on the attributes of God, the knowledge of the holy, A.W. Tozer said, what comes into your mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he went on to say that man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. So what do we embrace? Well, he says in verse 5, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. And then he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 11. So here's the thing we must embrace when the bottom falls out. Embrace God's word. Embrace the truth of God's word. Have you forgotten, he said, what the word of God tells us? He's recognizing in the book of Hebrews that not everybody who hears it or reads it is going to give total attention to it. In fact, in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says that we can easily drift. So don't neglect the word of God. Embrace God's word. Embrace it. What happens whenever we suffer, he says, when God deals with us, he goes on to explain in those verses 5 and 6 that some become indifferent. They get callous to what God is doing. Others get overwhelmed with the chastening hand of God. But yet what he says is we should rejoice. So he's telling us based upon verse 5 and 6. Now I want to say this. The devil is content to leave most of us... um, in superficial peace of spiritual apathy and ignorance. 
In other words, you drift from God, you've gotten calloused, you can't even remember the last time you've responded to God in, in a message, in a message in, um, in, with, with just forethought that God has all of me. He has every right to me. And, and, and yet you've gotten so calloused, you just hunker down and don't even, you don't even expect for God to disturb you in a service. I want to tell you, the devil would love to keep you in that superficial peace. You're okay. You're okay. Just, just stay there. Why? Because you're not embracing God's love, God's word, rather. You're neglecting it. Another thing that you need to embrace in, in this matter of God dealing with us and whenever we're, we're going through something and maybe the bottom's falling out, embrace God's care. Embrace His Word, embrace His care. That's what verse 7 and 9 through 9 is telling us. God loves us. God absolutely loves us and He cherishes us. We get the word cherish actually in verse number 6 for uh, every son whom He receiveth. In other words, he, that word receiveth is the idea of cherish. God is crazy about his children. Embrace it. I don't feel it. It has nothing to do with whether you feel it. It has everything to do with what does he say about it. And he says that he loves you. He treasures you. And he corrects his children. Notice the third thing that we ought to embrace. And that is, according to verse 10 and 11, God's purpose for our life. Embrace the word of God. Embrace the fact that God cares about you and embrace that God has a purpose. There's no trial you ever go through, but what God has a purpose. You've never gone through a, a moment in your life where you have felt frustrated by what God had a special purpose for you to go through that. Never want, God doesn't waste a trial and God never wastes his love. He has a purpose. I'm gonna give you this last thing, number three tonight. When the bottom falls out, Recognize that God may be dealing with you. Number two, embrace the essentials concerning God. But number three, cooperate with God's counsel in your life. Cooperate. Are you cooperating with God tonight? In what ways does he tell us to cooperate? Well, verse number five, he tells us to not despise the chastening of the Lord. In other words, Stop making light of God's loving involvement in your life. Stop making light of it. Stop downplaying what God is doing. Stop making light of the Lord's loving involvement. Another thing that he mentions. Stop fainting when you're being lovingly rebuked or corrected by your heavenly father. Stop, stop, in other words, stop giving up and quitting. Uh, we, we live in a place where it's easy to quit. We quit the process. Um, we've, we, we, people feel like they have options. I can just go to a, another church. Yeah, people, people can do that. They can bail the process just like they bail marriages. And, and just because society has said it's okay never means that God ever said, hey, hey, it's okay, why don't you do that? 
but people do that because they are fainting instead of faithing when God is lovingly trying to correct. So I, I, just, I, I, just, I just don't like this. And by the way, will you go somewhere just like Jonah did? And Jonah takes his problem with him, whether it's the ship or the sea, the problem goes with you. And all God is trying, all God, all God is trying to do is to get you to look unto Jesus. That's all he's trying to get you to do. Stop fainting. Third, under cooperating with God's counsel, verse 6 and 7, stay under God's loving process of correction. Stay under God's loving process of correction. And I love, this is over in verse 11, but he talks about afterwards. Now, it doesn't seem to be joyous at the moment. No spanking is good at the moment. No one ever says, yippee, yeah, I get to get a spanking. And, and it's not joyous at the moment, but he says afterward, when God brings you through it and you see that, that yes, this was good. And you say, if you're truthful and honest, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. In the, in the moment, I would have traded it for something else. But I knew, even if I didn't feel loved, I knew because I embraced the Word of God, because I embraced God's care and love in my life, I embraced the purpose that God had. Even if I couldn't see what the purpose was, I embraced it. I could stay under God's loving process. And there are times where people try to bail. Sometimes people bail by getting saved again. It used to be a kind of a trend. And so I didn't know it was a bad trend to get saved. Well, if you get saved more than once, it's a bad trend. Because one, it's not possible. You, you only get saved once. Jesus only died once. But what happened is some would, would get caught in sin. And rather than face the obvious that uh, sin is the problem. They just say, well, I guess I really wasn't saved. So if I get saved, then it's all under the blood. Well, don't you know that God's blood is powerful to do something with sin before you're saved, when you get saved, and even after you get saved? That's like a couple having trouble in their marriage. And they conclude, well, we must not really be married. If we go really, really get married, then maybe we won't have any trouble. Well, that's not going to solve the problems. And then when it comes to church discipline, there's, there's some that, who have the notion, well, I just will withdraw my membership. Well, church discipline is not just involving the individual that is stubborn, that refuses to repent. I have a responsibility to Jesus, who's the head of the church. I have a responsibility to the church, and I have a responsibility to the one who refuses to repent. And just because one withdraws doesn't mean that there's still not a going forward in dealing with the little leaven, that leaven at the whole lump, 1 Corinthians 5 talks about. Some have even requested, some churches have given somebody their letter because they're withdrawing. Listen, the letter is not for you. That's like you pulling out of school and saying, I want my transcripts. The transcripts are not for you. They're for the institution. The letter is where a church sends it to another church because it is stating the relationship of the individual to the church. 
It's not somebody coming in saying, here's my letter, I'd like to join. Well, I don't really care to know what you think about how you're related to the church because the authority is not given to Christians, the authority is given to the church. But we live in an unethical realm of Christianity where pastors don't really care about the the church letter anymore. But again, I have to go back to Scripture, not what the trend is in society. Um, The matter of church discipline as well, if somebody's under church discipline, this is where the letter helps. Somebody shows up under church discipline of another church, I've been asked, would you take them in? No, we would not. You say, but they're good people. I'm not talking about good people, bad people. We're talking about God, what God says about it. There's a process, and what is at stake is not a, a good old boy network here or a social club. The issue is, this is the body of Christ. Christ is the head. He's given us the authority. Bible believer is synonymous with Baptist. Baptist simply means the Bible is our authority. Well, I don't know if this is working here tonight or not, but stick with it. Work for Paul. Whenever the bottom falls out, cooperate with God's counsel in verses 12 through 13. He says, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down on the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. In other words, cast off your hopelessness. Quit saying, I'm doomed, I'll never make it. There's no hope for me. As long as God is alive, there's hope for you. You're never beyond hope. An elderly lady wrote these words in the front of her Bible. Quote, I absolutely refuse to gratify the devil by being downhearted. End of quote. Here's another counsel to cooperate with. Attach, this is verse 14. Let me read the verse. Follow peace with all men. Follow peace with all men. Attach yourself to the body of Christ. Attach yourself to the body of Christ. In other words, three things that everybody needs. Number one is a personal relationship with Jesus. Number two, a church family. And number three, a pastor. And if you're not right with the Lord, the body, or the pastor, you're not right with the Lord. Let me put it this way. If you're not right, young person, with mom and dad, you're not right with the Lord. If you're not right with your spouse, you're not right with the Lord. You're not right with his body. You're not right with the Lord. John Stott said a sense, and on his commentary on Hebrews 12, 14, a sense of rich corporate unity in the local congregation will do more to create the right atmosphere for healing than almost anything else. They must not only keep the peace, they must actively pursue it. Let me ask you, are you actively keeping the peace with all, all men? See, we like the universal church idea because we don't know 99.99% of who's out there. But he's not talking about a universal anything. The only thing really universal is sin. He's talking about the local church. 
Are you actively pursuing peace with all men? Are you actively keeping peace? Run the race together is what he's telling us. Why? Verse 14, look at the second part of the verse. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So cooperate with God's counsel when he says seeing God. He's talking about a metaphor for enjoying personal fellowship with God. Cooperate with God's counsel to do what? Experience God. Experience God. Experience God. Seek after God. Take God's supernatural enabling. That's verse 15. Take the grace of God by faith. Verse 15 through 17, he talks about sin. Sin in the heart, sin in the body. So he says, seek after God's enabling grace and power and then stay clean. Keep short accounts with God. Let me remind you tonight, God loves you. Even when he's correcting you, he loves you. So when the bottom falls out in your life and you're experiencing some some rough things, have you stopped to recognize, is God doing this? Oh, there were some people who told one man, this is because of sin in your life. But God was helping Job understand it wasn't because of sin in his life. It's because that God just loved him. And God was finding a way in which he could be better and his latter end was better than his beginning. Yes, there are times where we suffer like a Jonah. But it's still because God loves us. Sometimes we suffer like Jesus because we're identified with truth. Peter talks about that. But I'm saying you need to recognize God's dealings. You need to embrace God's essentials, His Word, His loving care, and His purpose. And then you need to cooperate with God's counsel in your life. All God's trying to do is put your eyes back on Jesus. Especially Will, it seems, when I'm talking to Will and I'm trying to to get his attention. We're talking eye to eye. and, And I'll say, Will, look at me. And Will looks at me by going... No, no, Will, right here, right here. And it's just like whatever, whatever it is, it just draws his eyes away. So no, Will, look right at me. And Jesus is trying to get us to see. I'm right here, look at me. Look at me. And there's so many things going on. And we've got our face this way, but our eyes are cocked this way. And God's trying to get involved in our life in such a powerful way because it's such a pure love just to get our eyes back on Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's stand together, please.